Hi, this is Marty Schwimmer, a partner at Leeson Ellis in New York. We're going to be talking about trademark use with Ralph Clausen on IP Fridays. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 45 of IP Fridays. Today we have an interview with Marty Schwimmer, partner with Leeson and Ellis, about the Flanax trademark case in the US. This trademark case is about the issues of well-known trademarks and trademark use. Then we have an update on the EU trademarks and an update on the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So, Ken, tell us more about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Ralph, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act turns 18 years old this year, and with that, the United States Copyright Office is undertaking a public study to assess how well the safe harbor provisions are working, particularly given the increased volume of digital content that flows through the Internet on a daily basis. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, is set forth in Section 512 of Title 17 of the United States Code. The DMCA sets forth a system for copyright owners and online entities, such as Internet service providers, to deal with copyright infringement on the Internet, including an important limitation on liability for those service providers that comply with the DMCA. It is based on a system of cooperation, detection of infringements, and notice and prompt takedown when applicable. According to the United States Copyright Office, the world of 1998 is much different than today. In particular, as identified by the Copyright Office, while Congress understood that it would be essential to address online infringement as the Internet continued to grow, it may have been difficult to anticipate the online world as we now know it where each day users upload hundreds of millions of photos, videos, and other items, and service providers receive over a million notices of alleged infringement. Given this exponential growth in uploaded and digitally distributed content, the United States Copyright Office is now conducting a public study to assess the impact and effectiveness of the DMCA. Public comment is invited, and it is important for the public to weigh in on the conversation. As part of the study, the U.S. Copyright Office is considering possible issues including costs and burdens of the notice and takedown procedures on large and small-scale copyright owners, online service providers, and the general public. Also under review is studying how Section 512 deals with online infringement and how to safeguard against instances of improper takedown. The public is invited to provide written comments by March 21, 2016 at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Instructions for filing comments will be made available on the U.S. Copyright Office website on or before February 1st of this year. That website is www.copyright.gov. The Copyright Office is also expected to hold public hearings to openly discuss the topics. For IP Fridays, I'm Ken Suzanne. Thank you, Ken. And you also had an update about the EU trademarks, right? 
Ralph, since our coverage in November 2015, the European Parliament has approved a set of measures that will significantly reform European Union trademark law. The amendments to the Community Trademark Regulation were approved on December 15th of 2015, and the new trademark directive is now proceeding to be published in the official journal of the European Union. We can expect the new regulations to be in place by the middle of 2016. Practitioners should take the time now to review the proposed changes. In heralding the changes and in an announcement published by the European Parliament, Rapporteur Cecilia Wilkstrom noted, quote, The trademark system in Europe functions well, but is in need of a modernization. Parliament has consistently kept the users of the system at the forefront of the discussion, and we are glad to see a system that will provide a lot of added value for users, end quote. We can expect a more efficient and less expensive system to be in place to register trademarks in the European Union. As reported earlier on IP Fridays, the name Community Trademark is being shelved and replaced by the EU Trademark, or EUTM. Other important changes to take note of are, 1. The graphic representation requirement will be deleted from the application process. Applicants will still need to describe their marks using an appropriate form generated by available technology. 2. Class heading claims will be history. The applicant will need to clearly specify the applicable goods and services. 3. Holders of EU trademarks will have greater powers for enforcement. This will include taking action against preparatory acts of trademark infringement and stopping goods that are being shipped in transit in Europe without the trademark owner's authorization. Four, saving the best news for last, look for cost savings changes in filing and renewal fees. The filing fee and the renewal fee will only cover one class of goods or services. This represents a major change of coverage of up to three classes per filing fee. If you file electronically, you can expect the filing fee for one class to be 850 euros. The second class will cost you 50 euros and each class beyond the second class will be 150 euros. We'll, con we'll continue to stay on top of these changes and developments, and for IP Fridays, I'm Ken Suzanne. Thank you, Ken. Without further ado, we will switch over to our interview with Marty Schwimmer about Flanax. I'm very excited to be joined by Marty Schwimmer today. If you don't know who Marty is, Marty is partner in Leeson & Ellis, which is an IP law boutique in White Plains, New York. And his practice is concentrated in trademarks, both U.S. and international. And he is also a blogger, publishing the trademark blog at schwimmerlegal.com. And he's also recognized as one of the best trademark lawyers in the U.S. by the Managing Intellectual Property magazine. Thank you for being on the show, Marty. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So, um, you told me you recently argued a very interesting case, uh, Bayer versus Belmora, um, about the trademark Flanax um, before the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Can you just briefly summarize that case for our listeners? Certainly. So, a predecessor in interest to Bayer Pharmaceutical adopted the mark Flanax, F-L-A-N-A-X, for analgesics, painkillers, in Mexico in the late 70s. They obtained a Mexican registration around that time. Um, 
they never took any steps to utilize that mark in the United States. They did not file a U.S. trademark application. Um, they did not approach the Food and Drug Administration, which is the U.S. agency that regulates the sales of pain relievers. And they just simply never sold products under the Flanax mark in the United States. In 2003, Belmora Pharmaceutical, a United States pharmaceutical company, became aware of Bayer's use of the Flanax mark in Mexico. Um, they did an investigation in the United States and determined that Bayer had taken no actions towards protecting or utilizing the mark in the United States. And Belmora filed a U.S. trademark application for the mark Flanax for the same goods, analgesics, in 2003. They obtained a registration in 2004 and began selling Flanax pain reliever in the United States, um, utilizing a package, I must add, that had a similar font to that used by Bayer in Mexico. Additionally, the packaging did incorporate Spanish language instructions as it was Belmore's business model to serve the underserved Spanish-speaking market in the United States. Bayer did not take action against Belmora until 2007, at which point it brought a petition to cancel the registration before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. They brought it under several theories. Um, Section 2D of the Lanham Act is prior use. They brought a standalone ground, Article 6 bis of the Paris Convention, alleging that Flanax was a famous mark. And a very rarely used provision of the Lanham Act, Section 14.3, misrepresentation of a registration to suggest a source. The Trademark Trial and Appeal Board of the PTO found that Bayer had not used the trademark at all in the United States. As an aside, uh, I want to point out that certain gray good versions, to misuse the word gray goods, found their way into the United States, Bayer's product, and that was deemed to not be trademark use. With regards to Article 6 bis, the TTAB noted that Article 6 bis is not a standalone cause of action under the Lanham Act and dismissed that cause. They did, however, find in favor of Bayer under Section 14.3, noting that Belmora's attempts to mimic the packaging of Bayer represented an attempt to suggest that they were the source of Mexican flags and preliminarily canceled Belmora's registration. So that is a decision that was given by the TTAB in April of 2014. Mm-hmm. Decisions of the TTAB can be appealed in one of two ways. The TTAB decision alone may be appealed to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which is located in Washington, D.C., the CAFC. Mm-hmm. The alternative method of appeal is to a United States District Court, which has two important features. 
it is a de novo review. So the record is reopened. And second, additional causes of action can be added to the appeal of the TTAB decision. Bayer chose to bring this in the Eastern District of Virginia, and they added common law infringement, false advertising, and state law claims. Belmora moved to dismiss Bear all of Bear's counts. They moved to dismiss the infringement and the false advertising on the grounds that Bear AG, which was the owner of the Mexican trademark registration, had not used the mark in United States commerce and therefore could not bring an action under the Lanham Act. Bear AG was joined by another Bear sub, which actually sells the Aleve product in the United States to bring false advertising claims against Belmora. Um, I don't don't think we can get into the nature of the false advertising claims in this discussion um, just because of the time and I wanted to concentrate on the issue that I'm assuming will be of interest to your listeners, which is what are the ways in which an entity can establish protectable trademark rights in the United States? Yes. The district court judge, Judge Lee of the Eastern District of Virginia, found that because ownership of trademark rights is a requisite element of trademark infringement, and because Bayer could not allege use of a trademark in the United States, that Bayer AG could not bring an infringement action. It did not have a protectable interest under the Lanham Act. He also ruled that Article 6 bis of the Paris Convention, the famous mark provision, will not be deemed to be a substitute for trademark rights in the United States. Bayer has appealed this decision, and we are now before the circuit court that embodies Virginia, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is located in Richmond, Virginia. The appeal has been briefed. We argued it in October, and we would expect a decision in the coming months. Mm, okay. So we don't have a decision yet. Um, maybe we can go a little bit into more into the background knowledge for our listeners that are not familiar with, for example, the Lanham Act or the Paris Convention protection of famous marks. Um, maybe we can just elaborate a little bit uh, what the, for example, what the Lanham Act is and why it was uh, used in this case. The Lanham Act is United States federal trademark statute. It embodies several causes of action relating to trademarks. Um, it would embody the Section 2D in which an owner of prior mark can move to oppose a trademark application or cancel a trademark registration. Section 32 allows the owner of the United States registration to prohibit an infringing use. Mm -hmm. Section 43A is the common law infringement statute. Section 14.3, as I mentioned before, is a somewhat rare case of being able to cancel a registration that's being used 
to misrepresent source. Mm-hmm. One can boil down all of these infringement causes into two basic elements. Or Number one, the plaintiff must own prior United States trademark rights. Now, I've boiled an awful lot of case law into that one sentence. <laughs> I'll repeat it. Plaintiff, do we have the right plaintiff? Must own, they cannot have expired, they cannot have sold it, it needs to have been assigned to them. Prior, well, there's going to be a lot of case law about who came first. U.S., this is what this case involves, whether the U.S. trademark rights. Trademark rights, is this a trademark? Is this a registrable, is this a protectable mark? So that's the first element, and those are all of the component questions. Defendant allegedly uses a trademark or makes a misleading statement about a trademark that Mm. creates a likelihood of confusion with plaintiff's prior trademark rights. The posture of this case, we're still in the very preliminary stage, and it just deals with that concept of U.S. trademark rights. Right, but in this case, we did not really have prior registered trademark rights, but um, Bayer just claimed that they had unregistered trademark rights or basically had a famous mark, non, non, not registered famous mark, right? So in the end of the day, there is only one way of obtaining United States trademark rights, and that is utilizing the trademark in U.S. commerce. U.S. commerce is a litigated term, and it basically has two components. Interstate commerce, commerce from one state to another, or international commerce with the United States. So if a German wine merchant slaps a trademark on a label of German wine and ships it into the United States, that wine merchant has obtained United States common law rights and without more, can bring an infringement action in the United States under Section 43A. Mm -hmm. Also, that merchant could oppose a subsequent trademark application under Section 2D. That German wine merchant can then also perfect its rights by filing a United States trademark application. We do not have the concept of registration without use. Yes. Okay. We accommodate non-U.S. trademark owners who are nationals of member states of the Paris Convention in certain ways, but we do not exempt them from the user requirement. Right. For example, you can, just for our listeners as a brief background, um, you can um, file for a trademark on intent-to-use basis, like you would intend to use this in the U.S., but you can only, that's my uh, take, uh, enforce that trademark right if you actually start using that, correct? So the a U.S. or a non-U.S. applicant can in effect, reserve a trademark by filing an intent-to-use application. That creates a constructive priority date. What I mean by that is, if I file my intent-to-use trademark application in the United States on January 1st, 
and I subsequently begin use in U.S. commerce on July 1st, my priority date will relate back to January 1st, the date of my application. And you can only enforce the trademark after July, correct? That's an important point. The owner of a ITU, Intent to Use Application, does not have standing to go into a civil court and bring an infringement action. It must perfect its rights first by filing that statement of use. Correct. Okay. Yes. Well, what we see is Bayer is working through all of the possible ways to obtain trademark rights in the United States. That's what I think is a, makes it an interesting case. Now, Bayer had been utilizing the Flanex mark on product inside of Mexico for many years. People that were not authorized by Bayer were on occasion shipping the product across the border into the United States. We colloquially refer to such sales as gray goods. Mm. Bayer attempted to rely on these gray goods sales as use in the United States commerce. And the TTAB held that because such use is not under the control of the trademark owner, it does not constitute trademark use in the United States. Right. That decision is now final and was not appealed, that aspect of the case. It has subsequently tried to argue that in a way it's been using the mark in international commerce with the United States. So I'd like to discuss the, I guess, furthest reach of the concept, the broadest definition of U.S. commerce. Now, as I said, a German wine merchant can affix the mark onto the bottle and ship it into the United States, and that will be use in U.S. commerce. Let's assume there was a famous German hotel. Do you want to pick one? <laughs> <laughs> like Steigenberger. Uh, pick one I can pronounce. <laughs> uh, but but, the, but let's assume that like Stagenbager, like many famous hotels, is itself affixed in one spot. Because it's a service, we will adopt the fiction that if it promotes that mark on advertisements into the United States, and in some way a United States consumer can make a reservation with that German hotel, that will be deemed to be use of the mark in relation to hotel reservation services with the United States. And in that way, that is how the United States has been offering trademark protection to place-specific trademarks over the years. Wimbledon, for example, something like that. Mm -hmm. There are ways around this for the owner of the non-U.S. place-oriented mark, Wimbledon was probably eligible for broadcast services in the United States at a certain point. Because of the Internet, it's now easy to offer information services under a trademark in the United States. The problems that Bayer encountered are the problems of a regulated good. Several years ago, Cuba's national tobacco company, which owns the mark Cohiba, attempted to protect its rights in the United States. It could not use the mark because of the embargo, the embargo that the United States had placed on Cuban goods. Now, Cohiba was, in certain ways, a famous mark in the United States. The average United States consumer, 
of cigars recognized that mark as originating in Cuba. And Cohiba argued that it was a famous mark entitled to protection under Article 6 this of the Paris Convention, which holds that famous marks can be protected theoretically even without use or registration in a country. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it's at that time that the U.S. Second Circuit, which embodies New York, thought about it but didn't answer and said, we don't have to decide it on this grounds because of reasons that have to do more with statutes that relate to Cuban companies. But we think that we're not going to go with it. We don't think that we have enacted that provision of the Paris Convention. Then, several years later, there was a case involving a restaurant called Bukhara. There was originally a restaurant named Bukhara in India, which seemed to make some of the lists of the world's greatest restaurants. It had operated another, a a branch of the restaurant had operated under the name Bukhara in New York. It closed. Some of the former staff opened a new restaurant called Bukhara, and the Indian owners tried to argue Article 6 best, famous mark. And then the Second Circuit specifically said, we, we being the United States, have specifically enacted 44D, convention priority, 44E, the ability to base a United States registration on a foreign registration. But we have not enacted the rest of the Paris Convention, which includes Article 6 bis. Mm-hmm. And now the Eastern District of Virginia, citing prior Fourth Circuit cases, unambiguously stated, Fourth Circuit does not believe that Article 6 bis is part of United States law either. Because the Eastern District of Virginia had so unambiguously held that Article 6 bis would not be recognized in the Fourth Circuit, and therefore the court would not entertain the question as to whether Bear's Flanax mark was famous in the United States, one of the few remaining avenues was for Bear to argue that the Flanax mark was used in international commerce with the United States. And in so doing, they discuss the Casino de Monte Carlo case. In approximately 2005 or so, an entity had registered certain domain names that incorporate the Casino de Monte Carlo trademark. The entity in Monaco that owns the casino, SBM, brought a cybersquatting action in the United States. The question therefore arose, did it own, did SBM own a U.S. trademark for Casino de Monte Carlo? It had not filed, and because it was a place-specific business, ran into this issue of, was it offering these services in United States commerce? SBM owned an office in New York. It promoted the hotel, and it promoted the casino. Americans could reserve rooms in the hotel from the United States, and therefore the name of the hotel was utilized in U.S. commerce. They couldn't consummate any sort of business transaction relating to the casino from the United States, and therefore it was difficult to establish that that mark was being used in U.S. commerce despite the advertising. It was 
this time that the Fourth Circuit expanded the concept of U.S. commerce, it argued that Congress could potentially regulate the behavior of Americans while they were in the casino. Because Congress could potentially regulate the casino, the casino services were in United States commerce. Thus, the mark Casino de Monte Carlo was being used in U.S. commerce. Therefore, it did own a protectable trademark in the United States in Casino de Monte Carlo, and therefore they could bring a U.S. cybersquatting action. This case is viewed as the furthest or broadest definition of United States commerce. So you said Bayer tried to like a lot of different avenues to um, get basically to show trademark uh, use or to get actually a standing for a trademark right in the U.S. based on non-registered rights. Um, and that is very helpful for um, the foreign listeners uh, listening to our podcast um, outside the U.S., um, to see what rights they can have in the U.S. even without registering trademarks. And, of course, um, it can be easily seen from the case that it's much easier to enforce trademarks when you register trademarks in the U.S. So Bayer also tried to um, argue that they have the well-known trademark based on the use in Mexico, where they are probably well-known, and that's built over uh, via the gray market, as you explained, to the U.S. Um, and the court decided that that cannot be uh, considered use in the U.S. because it is not under the control of Bayer. But um, I think we did not really um, discuss whether the cross-border acts um, perform, um, basically done by um, people that are not under the control of Bayer, uh, the gray market dealers, whether that can actually induce a well-known trademark in the U.S. Um, what are your thoughts on this, and did the court already say something about this? So, to clarify, assuming that an unauthorized third party obtains a portion, a, a shipment of a trademark goods on the Mexico side of the border, and they ship that into the United States. That, yes. will, not deem, that will not be deemed to be trademark use. That mm. the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board said, the trademark owner does not control the nature of this transaction, and therefore benefits of that transaction will not inure to their benefit. There is an important point. Well, I want to add an important point. These sales would not be lawful. Pain reliever is a regulated product. So there's two different reasons why that use would not create protectable trademark rights. Number right. one, the trademark owner did not control it, but also those are unlawful sales. To sell pain reliever in the United States, you have to take certain steps with regards to the Food and Drug Administration. So in this case of analgesics, the cross-border shipment by unauthorized third parties will not be deemed to be used. Mm -hmm. And now that, with regard to at least the lack of control, that is now a final unappealed decision in this case. Right. So um, if I understand you correctly, unlawful actions or unlawful uses cannot, uh, cannot establish um, a right for a well-known trademark. So let's say 
we have an illegal business in the US, just, um, just as a side discussion. Um, let's say we have an illegal business in the US um, that is operating under a certain name that could never, even if it would become famous, like, for example, Chicago Mafia or something, if, they, if there's a name for, for the Mafia in Chicago, um, <coughs> even if they, would, um, if they would be famous in the US under that name, they could never enforce uh, trademark rights based on well-known based on a well-known trademark because they are illegal? Is that what I understand? Well, it would be an odd fact pattern where the, <laughs> the owner of a trademark that was well-known in one country was behaving illegally in another country. In this instance, we're not alleging that Bayer was responsible. Well, Bayer was sort of in a, um, a dilemma in that they couldn't take responsibility for the sales because the sales would be unregulated. And, they, and because they didn't have responsibility of the sales, it wasn't authorized trademark use. Mm -hmm. Now, as to whether great good sales or some other informal things, in, informal usage could lead to a well-known or, or add to the reputation, let's assume we had a, a lawful good. Uh, chocolate bars were being shipped. Well, that's a food product, so I've chosen a bad example. An apparel product is shipped informally from Mexico to the United States, could that aid the owner of an international trademark? Mm -hmm. Doubtful because they're not controlling the sale. Right. Now, it's my understanding of Article 6 bis case law in other countries that the trademark owner does have to rely on so-called bleed, bleed through or spillover advertising and products in, in informal types of usages. The point is, though, even if there was spillover or other sorts of usages into the United States, we're arguing, and we believe that the case law supports, that the United States simply does not recognize the concept of reputation without use. Yes. Mm -hmm. Period, end of sentence. And the use must be under control of the person who's enforcing the right, or the, the yes. entity. Right? Yes. I understand. So um, this is a really interesting case because it, um, as I said, shows uh, what rights can be enforced in the U.S. that are not registered or may be enforced. In this case, not, but um, maybe in other cases. Um, so what do you think are the most important lessons uh, for our listeners that they can take home um, especially maybe the non-U.S. listeners um, from this case? To the extent that the listeners do not have a problem yet, it is always easier to reserve rights in a mark by filing a trademark application in the United States. That will always simplify your life. Because you have to ultimately perfect the registration with use, you should look to these cases that explore the outer boundaries of what constitutes United States commerce. The Casino de Monte Carlo case and certain other cases that ask the question, what is United States commerce? Mm, right. Um, so if people want to learn more about you and um, your blog and your practice, 
um, or if they have questions about this particular case, where would be the best way? Uh, what would what would be the best way to reach you? The easiest uh, way to remember how to find me is just Google the term trademark blog, and that I'd like to believe that will take you to my website, trademarkblog.com. If you'd like to learn more about our law firm, we are at leasonellis.com. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, the handle is at trademarkblog, and I'd be happy to send copies of the lower decision and briefs on the topic to someone who emails me, schwimmer at leasonellis.com. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.